This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Want to become the sort of developer top rail shops like ThoughtBot fight over? Join Upcase today to get the pro training, insider knowledge, access to ThoughtBot developers, and a community of like-minded learners you need. Hone core skills like Vim, Tmux, Git, and Rails by visiting upcase.com slash half off to get 50% off your first month of Upcase. Let's get that junior out of your title and start leveling up today with Upcase. I do want to remind you guys that I am playing Derek in fantasy football this week, and unless he throws the game, you're all going to sound awful. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, well, put pressure on him for that. Okay. I'll <laughs> Hang on. I'm going to go bench some people. <laughs> Noted. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Hi, Sean. Hi, Lila. <laughs> Hi, Derek. Hi, Layla. Okay. It's the Brady Bunch. Yeah. Okay. Totally. How's it going? Um, it's going really well. I am enjoying a very chill week in San Francisco. Uh, my my um, next client project was supposed to start this week, but it got pushed back a week because of the holiday schedule. So I'm just doing odds and ends, catching up on things, recording podcasts. It's, it's very nice. Cool. I like working. Like a lot of people take Wednesday. This is so we're recording this the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. It's not going to go out till close to Christmas. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm glad you said that. I like I like working the days when most people take off because it's super quiet and um, I don't know. It always feels very productive. Yeah. Yeah, we're in a, we're in a code freeze at Shopify right now because Black Friday, Cyber Monday are our two biggest days of the year. Ah, so you just do nothing then, right? That's how that's how code freeze works. <laughs> No, it's it's more like we deploy everything ever on uh, the day after Cyber Monday. I believe it's called uh, Shipping Tuesday. Right. Oh. So it's got like a week's worth of changes queued up in it. Mm. Yeah. Good luck. Nice. What are you up to, Derek? Um, I'm winding down on my client project now. Um, it was supposed to go on a little longer, but for various reasons, it's going to be winding down. So I'm looking for looking for new additional client work next week, hopefully. Cool. So you're in the same boat as me, almost. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I want to talk about the idea of teachable moments. Do you guys know what a teachable moment is? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Um, Derek, do you want to tell us what you think a teachable moment is? Yeah. So we talk about this all the time with my kids, right? So it's like Mm. uh, when they do something that maybe isn't quite what you wanted or doesn't quite work out the way they wanted. Taking that time instead of being like, you got this wrong or you did this wrong, to be like, to teach instead, right? Instead yes. of assigning blame, figuring out how to prevent something like that from happening in the future, or how to do better in the future, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. That is a great example of like how teachable moments work in the real world. And I think uh, I was reading about them on Wikipedia <laughs> in preparation for this, uh, doing my research. And I think the basic idea is just that In a teachable moment, your ability to learn a particular task or skill is more possible. You're in a mental state, an emotional state where you can make that leap a little bit more easily. So the reason I wanted to explore this as a topic is because there's so many teachable moments in programming, right? Like as as a programmer, as a developer, you're constantly learning new things. You're constantly evaluating 
your approaches to solving problems and ideally communicating with other people and, and talking to them about how they solve problems. So I wanted to ask you guys about some memorable, teachable moments that you've had either as learners or facilitators of learning. So like in Derek's case with his kids, you know, he's, that's a teachable moment for the kids, but he's also participating in it as a teacher. Right. So I thought it would be fun for the three of us to talk about, you know, like how we learn to not force push to master or things like that, or, or less, you know, less traumatic things. Okay. I mean, I, one that came to mind right off the bat was something that happened on my client project last week, which was, so they do hot deploy, so there's no downtime for deploys. Um, that can get tricky with migrations. So if you're doing destructive data migrations on a hot deploy, you're, it's basically going to be bad news. So we know, like, we, we know the typical pitfalls of like, um, if you're going to deploy code that depends on a new column, like first deploy the migration, then deploy the new code that uses the new column, right? That kind of stuff. So you don't have requests being served on like partially migrated stuff. The code is looking for that column to be there. It's not there yet, that kind of thing. Where it gets a little tricky, what we ended up doing was we deployed a new column that wasn't in use anywhere, but it had a default. And it was a very large table. So we learned <laughs> when the site went down that Postgres locks the database or locks the table for writes when it's creating a default, with a, a new column with a default, right? So the way you would typically do that is create the, create the column without the default in one step, backfill the data in another step, then add the default as a third step. And that would be a way to avoid that. So the teachable moment was, you know, <laughs> oh, oh shit, we took the website down <laughs> and it, you know, it took five minutes for the migration to complete. And then we were furiously Googling like what kind of things, what clearly there's a whole other class of things that take the database down that were just not on the top of our on the top of our mind so we found some good documentation there's a we can link to it it's the um, braintree has a good post about like stuff that they've found that they can do and can't do and different workarounds that they can do to keep the database live while they're trying to do this migration so we'll link that in the show notes so we kind of pass that around a little bit and then um just having the conversation about the site being down among a lot instead of just being like the site's down it's my fault i wrote this migration like we talked about the different types of things that cause this type of problem we circulated that article amongst everybody. We started talking about tools we could build that would like during deployment would be like, this is a list of changes that's going out. And also here are the migrations and you could review the migrations and be like, oh, I know that to be a problem. And then could we even go further and automate the checking of the migrations to say like this, I know this is a type of thing that's going to take your database down, right? Or it's going to lock this table, not necessarily take the database down. And then, you know, pretty quickly this week, we, today I just added a whole bunch of migration, uh, a whole bunch of indexes which also locks a table for write. And, you know, because that was fresh in everybody's head, I was able to use, like, Dan Croak has an article about on the Giant Robots blog about creating indexes concurrently in Postgres. So, like, everybody's kind of learning that lesson, and we're all, like, we're all sharing. Like, there's no, there hasn't been a big process change put in place yet because we haven't quite figured out what we want to do. But it's on the top of everybody's mind. And rather than being like, okay, this is a problem, and we fixed it, we're just trying to keep it top of people's mind until we figure out what the right automation is so that we don't have to keep like trying to remember not to do things that take the database down so that was my teachable moment from the last week anyway wow and it definitely was it definitely was like even even when it happened like the entire when the database went down and I'm, like i sent that article along and i was like i think we just created a column with a default on the orders table which is huge mm -hmm. 
And then everybody was like, there were there were people that were like, oh, we did that last year too, right? <gasps> like people had remembered, like, oh, we oh, we no. had this problem a year ago, right? Yeah. So that's where it was like, okay, we've done, we've got this top of mind now, and now I think the next step is to keep pushing and be like, how do we automate this so it doesn't like? Because clearly it was top of mind a year ago too. Yeah. So how do we take it the next step to make it a little more in your face about like, here are the migrations you're about to run. Here's this list of things we know to be a problem. Mm -hmm. Do any of these match up? If so, just bail out of this deploy. Right. So introducing some step in the existing process that ensures that someone along the way, ideally more than one person, is thinking about things that might might take the database down. Right. Or even doing things like um, having CI deploy to staging and while it's deploying, hit the website, right? Mm -hmm. And have that be something, you know, I don't know, that would be a little more probably involved. But just trying to think about different ways to, like, we all learned this lesson and different ways to automate yeah. that lesson so that we don't forget it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it isn't forgotten about for another year. Right. Yeah. That's hard. Until another developer comes on and, you know does that because that, i mean that client project has a lot of different developers involved you could look at that migration and easily miss that it's doing this right mm -hmm. but migrate there aren't a ton of migrations that get run all the time so like reviewing them as part of the deploy process isn't a terrible idea yeah this reminds me of a story i have that is definitely not as dramatic but it is also related to databases on i think my first project at thoughtbot after my apprenticeship I had to import 10,000 records from a CSV into our Postgres database or the application's Postgres database. And I did some research and I discovered that Postgres has a copy from CSV function. And I thought, oh, that's cool. You know, that's like, that's going to be faster and easier and less code than writing it in Ruby. So I did that only to discover once we got to staging that you have to have super user permissions to run the copy from CSV function, which when you're on Heroku, you can't have. <laughs> so it was a little stressful because, you know, there was a deadline involved or something or, or expectations had been set that, oh, this won't take much time. It'll be up and running tomorrow. We'll have all the data in, no problem. And, you know, someone at the last minute we had to go back to the beginning and implement it the kind of less clever way, which is just writing writing it in Ruby, uh, iterating over the CSV, instantiating a Ruby object, and putting it in the database. So the lesson learned there was just to really make sure that you understand the limitations of an approach before committing to it and run it by somebody else, too. I think I probably ran it by somebody, but you know, really run it by someone, like really get someone to poke holes in your logic or, or your thinking and to make sure it's actually as robust as you think it is. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think I would have known, like if you ran that by me, I'd have been like, oh yeah, I've seen that before. Yeah, I know. That'll, that'll probably work. <laughs> um, I don't think I would have even thought of that. So I don't know. We'll, <laughs> but yeah, maybe... that's not usually the section of the docs you, you scroll to, like user permissions <laughs> required. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's true. It's a great point. And, but it's also, I think, Derek's story reminded me of this because there are some things that you don't think of until they're a problem in a production or a staging environment. And they're hard to anticipate, but they're not impossible to anticipate. And one way you can anticipate them is by making it part of the process and trying to get feedback from people who are more experienced in these kinds of things than you are. 
Yeah, that's what the code reviews are all about too, right? Yeah. Like, and like I feel like we all probably have code review teachable moments where like we push code that maybe didn't get a review, right? Because <laughs> we thought it was so simple, yeah. and then we we're like, oh, there's a typo in there. Actually, it took the whole site down, and I didn't wait for CI to complete, or like. <laughs> Whatever the case might be. Yeah, like I assumed that there would be a user, and sometimes there's not a user, and right. we have a nil error. So, stuff like that. So, y'all ever heard of a database URL? <laughs> heard of them, yes. I know, th- I know this story. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, this one happens to me and everybody else, and I still do it all the time. Uh, it's a really easy one where if you have an environment variable called database URL set, it will override all other configuration options in Rails for which database to connect to and always win. And if you happen to, say, just pull down all of your configuration options from staging or production to get your dev environment up and running, you also maybe pull da- uh, pulled down database URL. And if you run your tests and your tests run database cleaner and you also happen to be like, up at 2 a.m. developing because you couldn't sleep. <laughs> yeah, somebody's going to get a little angry. Yeah, uh, we've had this happen on client. We had this happen on a client project before. Only one, to my knowledge, and we couldn't figure out. Like, nobody <laughs> remembered having cloned the, the Heroku config, and we couldn't figure out, like, what happened to the data. We thought the site was hacked. And, like, it wasn't until we started looking through the logs, and we were like, this looks like the logs that the database cleaner you know generates when you do the truncation strategy that we figured out that like okay this is what happened we're still not sure who did it but it doesn't like to the teachable moment point it doesn't really matter who did it right Right. (laughs) because they didn't they clearly didn't know that they had done it so the lesson there were a couple actually when i had that problem there were a couple interesting lessons that were learned one was yes this can happen and database url will totally obliterate whatever you have in your local config database.yaml or config db.yaml whatever it is i forget So it'll totally overwrite that if you have database URL set, like Sean said. The second thing that was really interesting that came out of that was a lot of the data in this production app that we (laughs) were attempting to drop did not get dropped because we were using foreign keys. So we had... We had foreign key constraints that prevented the data from being dropped because they were, you know, you're trying to drop the users table, but the user has posts. So the constraint stops you from doing that. Where it didn't help us is where we used Rails magic like polymorphic associations because we can't add a foreign key there. So we lost all of the polymorphic association type data. So that was an interesting, like, I'd already been looking at, like, using foreigner to create foreign keys. And then that just solidified in my head, okay, I'm always going to do this because it'll help prevent me from shooting myself in the foot in many different circumstances. So that was one kind of teachable moment that came out of a totally different (laughs) circumstance of, like, okay, don't run the tests with database URL set. And that actually, like, it took a long time, but eventually we just added something to suspenders, uh, which is our Rails template, that in the spec helper, it will check to see if database URL is present and then bail out if it is. So it'll never run your tests. That's great. That is set. I'm really glad to hear that's part of suspenders. <laughs> <laughs> We're also fixing it in Rails proper. Oh, yeah? Yeah. We're going to require an additional environment variable to be set if database URL is set in uh, development or test. Nice. Nice. That sounds great. So production production environments will still be able to use database URL, and then right. test environments will have to be like, no, really. <laughs> exactly. It'll have to be enable foot gun equal one. Right. <laughs> Are you sure? Like True. <laughs> and then the, the other thing that came from it is like looking at, and I love deploying to Heroku, but looking at Heroku Postgres, which I also really love, like 
there's a shortcoming there and that all you need is that is a username and password and your database is open everywhere, right? There's no restriction that your database is only accessible from your app server, which is something you might do if you have your own infrastructure. So that was kind of, again, becoming more aware of some of the shortcomings of the platforms we use that are convenient, but maybe not necessarily how you would do it if you did it yourself. Another another common Heroku-related one I see um, the Turing students do all the time is uh, when they're following the tutorials, they add the um, Rails 12-factor gem just to their gem file normally, which then means that, uh, for example, in your tests, it won't write to the log file. It will spit all output to standard out. So you cannot read your test output at all. And they'll just go for weeks or even a month and like just assume that that's how it is and never and (laughs) and like basically end up writing fewer tests because they can't ever read the output (laughs) interesting i have i have never noticed that test stuff is a test test output stuff like i i come we come on to a lot of projects where i'm like what how do you make sense like a lot of i feel like that happens a lot of times where people like oh this is just the way it is like because they're not familiar with the test suite that both executes fast and like has concise out actionable output Mm -hmm. right and you'll see like output with deprecations in it. You're like, well, what's stopping us from fixing these deprecations or output that have puts that have put statements in it? <laughs> it's like, well, that was probably useful at one point, maybe not useful anymore, or pending specs and things like that hanging around. It's probably not a teachable moment, but definitely something that I see. I mean, I guess in the sense of being a teacher, maybe because I'll come into those projects and be like, okay, this is messy. It's not really a problem, like. You still get your test results. You can still run them. But look how much nicer it is if you clean up the output, right? You get rid of these deprecations. And first of all, now we can upgrade libraries without worrying about this deprecated behavior going away. Mm -hmm. And then also, like, you're going to get more concise output, just everything that comes from that. Yeah. So just the small changes you can make that have a big impact. Yeah, definitely. And I think also articulating your thinking and and explicitly calling out the benefits in the description of the pull request when you when you open that pull request is is something that i think helps spread the knowledge among other members of the team who might not know that it's possible to use build instead of create in some places when you're using factory girl and other things like that yeah i feel like code review is definitely it's it's a common like teaching moment, yeah. right? It's like yeah. especially for factory for factory girl often. I'm like, yeah. oh when or like if you're using build, you're like, this object has a lot of associations and did you know yeah. that build I probably wouldn't say, did you know that build also builds associations? Because that's one of those things that Gabe taught me this. It's um, feigning surprise. <laughs> it's like, well, no, I didn't I didn't know that because, I mean, I guess did you know is not feigning surprise, but like saying something like, you didn't know that build also creates oh, the yeah, associations. Yeah, 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 totally. Right? Totally. That would be feigning surprise. Yeah. Um, don't do that. But just saying like build also, hey, build also creates any associated objects. But if you use build stubbed, it's not going to persist those objects to the database, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Or like maybe we can just get away with calling post.new here. We don't actually need a factory at all. Yeah. Those types of things. Yeah, totally. So so far our conversation has mostly been about problems we've encountered with databases in staging and production <laughs> environments. And I was wondering if you guys have any stories about how object oriented any object oriented programming concepts clicked for you. Because that's something that I think takes a while and a lot of conversation with other people to to really get and understand. And I, I have an example, but I wanted to ask if if you guys if anything comes to mind for you guys as well. I would say I can't remember anything where something clicked. I like to me it's just been kind of a slow 
movement in like the direction of smaller single responsibility objects. You know, the project that Sean and I worked on together was definitely like probably the most I had moved towards that where we followed like Sandy Metz's rules. We were aggressively extracting stuff and I was on a team full of people that also supported that behavior. So it was probably the project where I think a lot of that came together and solidified in my mind that like, yes, this is the way to go. Cause like I had been kind of trying to move that play in a lot of my own development, but when not everybody else you're working around has that same like mentality, it's hard to see like, is this really helping? But like as that project progressed, the ability to make changes that were, would have otherwise have been pretty disruptive and just be like, Oh, well, we can insert this new object here, here, like do whatever, like change, make these two small changes and everything continues to work as it is, was really interesting. And then following up with Daniel, like we did a couple of years after that, who's the developer on T1D now, like following up with him and hearing that his experience has been the same even two years out, right? Wow, so that would... that's great. That experience, like it wasn't like a single moment where I was like, oh, okay, now I understand why you make small objects. It was just kind of like an experience over several months and years of making smaller things and seeing how it works out. Mm-hmm. There was actually another good one on, on that project too that... It's more specific to Ruby than OO in general. And I'm trying to remember specifically what it is. Derek, maybe you can remember this. It was, we had some sort of before filter or an around action in a module that we were mixing into controllers. And I don't remember exactly what it was where it really, really bit us. But there, there was one time when we like then universally agreed to never do that again, where it just like completely bit us and took us two days to track down. <laughs> but I can't remember specifically what it was. That sounds really useful. <laughs> Whatever it was. <laughs> I don't I don't remember. I'm trying to remember. I don't remember what it was that we it was just like something something weird happening with data. And, and we could not figure out what was going on because we were looking through the controller and it's just like oh there's nothing here that could like affect anything and there's no like before actions right oh uh, right yeah but it was in a module and so and, and so of course then we've we eventually tracked it down and we're just like all right guys we should we should be able to figure out what happens in an action without having to switch files so we're gonna stop <laughs> putting callbacks in uh in modules right and that's i do i do feel like the lesson we learned from it was rails was railsy Mm-hmm. But, like, it is OOP, right? If you're doing an include, then you're doing multiple inheritance. Or if you're using inheritance for code sharing really more than, like, modeling, then I do feel like that is like that is a smell in object-oriented programming, right? And we got bit by that. Yeah, yeah I had that exact same experience last week. I, was, I, I, was, I mentioned this on the last episode I recorded with Derek, but I was working on upgrading the Spree gem. And there are just... There are callbacks everywhere, everywhere. And I can at least take comfort in knowing that I didn't write them. That's like, at least I don't, that's not on me. But yeah, tracking down all of these state changes and all of these callbacks is just really difficult. It made all the more difficult when, when they are defined in modules and concerns. Sounds concerning. <laughs> it was very concerning. Never gets old. <laughs> what was your, what was that your, you said you had, you had oh, a, yeah, yeah. an object-oriented programming moment. Yeah. What was that? So in retrospect, I actually think that describing it as an object-oriented programming learning moment is, is, is not accurate, but it was definitely a moment where uh, ideas around interface design kind of coalesced for me. So I can't remember what project I was working on, but it was some project with an existing JSON API. And my colleague Scott and I were tasked with implementing a new endpoint for signing in and signing up. So the single endpoint had to support 
signing in, signing up, it was a JSON API for mobile clients. And we were talking about what to name it and what the route should look like. And Scott proposed post authentications. So a post action to create an authentication. And my initial reaction to that was some discomfort because I thought my, my objection at the time was, well, we don't have any models in our system on the server side that correspond to this idea of an authentication resource in the API. And I think Scott's response is very zen. It was like, well, why, why is that a problem? <laughs> or, you know, like, why does that matter? And I think it was the first time someone had prompted me to think about, someone had prompted me to question my, my assumption that the representation of resources in a JSON API should be coupled to the modeling on the back end. And after I thought about it, I realized that there's really no reason for that to be the case. There's, there's no reason that an application shouldn't expose an authentications endpoint, even though there's no table in the database called authentications, or there's no active model, active record model called an authentication. So that was a cool moment for me and, and one that's definitely stuck with me. And it's one that I've tried to have with other people who are kind of where I was at that time. And I think that's, it's come up a couple time in, uh, times in pull requests. And even if people are resistant to it or aren't ready for that idea, I feel like I'm planting the seed. So, so <laughs> that, was, that was a cool interaction for me. Yeah, I see that one. I see that one a lot, definitely, on projects as well. And I think right around, it wasn't too much sooner than when I started here that I came to that like, conclusion as well. Like, oh... I can have controllers that with, with names that don't have anything to do with things in my database. Like concepts in my application don't only exist in my database. They can exist outside of my database as well. And I can model things a lot nicer restfully Yes. by not restricting myself to like, oh, controller name must match, model name must match table <laughs> name, right? Right. Um, and when people start to realize that, I think like the routes start to look better. The whole app just starts to have like a better language about it. Like... Mm -hmm. So you, if you try to shoehorn yourself into the restful way of thinking, things go pretty well. Yeah, the realization that not all classes defined in app models have to inherit from active record base was, is always a good uh, mm -hmm. step in Rails development. Yeah, definitely. But then you have to have the conversation about where you put them, right? Does it go in app models? <laughs> it can Does it still go, go in app models. It can guys. still go in app models. <laughs> yes. Derek's just going to say app services to troll me. I can yeah, feel app services. <laughs> I said service object on our last recording multiple times and you never bothered to like complain about it. So I must be winning you over. <laughs> was was I on that one? Yeah. The la I think the one that just got released, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I think I just You're slipping a little up. bit. Go ahead. Well, you you were going to say something. Uh, have you guys ever gone through that phase of testing where you just abuse the shit out of the RSpec DSL? Oh, where you're subjecting and letting and let banging and uh, what else is yeah. before, after, <laughs> around. Your, your tests are in a before and then you do like subject page and then only do one line <laughs> it statements. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think that's always interesting. Like the, the, the more experienced you get, the less of RSpecs DSL you want to use. I think that's generally true. Yeah. Which like, and if you if you talk to Sam about it, Sam Fippen, uh, like that is kind of how it's meant to be used when you're able to avoid using most of it. What do you mean by that? 
in that it gives you the dirty tools to do horrible things to help you test legacy code when you need it. But well-written RSpec looks like well-written mini-test. I, would, I, I think like the avoiding the DSL thing was something that happened to me. So this was before I was working. Like before I was working at ThoughtBot, I used the DSL like crazy. I set subject all the time. I used before because I didn't want to touch. Like I was very much on the dry, dry, dry. Like Ruby is all about dry, right? <laughs> no so don't repeat yourself. anywhere. Right. And then like I read an article by Joe Ferris, I think, that was like, it's called Let's Not, which we'll link to in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's basically about post. avoiding using those types of DSL methods. And at the time, it was one of those things where I, like, I wasn't particularly ready to hear it, but I was like, well, I know these people are pretty smart and like, they're good at Rails. Like, what, like, what are they trying to get at here? I'll ju- I guess I'll just do it because somebody smart told me this was a good idea, right? And so I started to do it. And it wasn't long before I was like, oh, I don't have to think about the implied state of this test every time, or inferred, inferred? I don't know, state of this test, <laughs> the global state, basically, of this test every time I am, like, setting up a new test, right? Or I want to change something about the post that got created, like, oh, if I make this post active, is that going to screw up the other tests that I have? Like, that type of thing. And I don't have to scroll up, you know, three screens worth of tests to see what the state is for this test. I just see it right here, even though it's more typing, like, that trade-off was definitely made clear over time, but it was one of those things that I just like took on faith because somebody I trusted on the internet told me <laughs> that it was something I should try, and it worked out. Mm-hmm. So that was like the impetus for trying it out, but then as soon as you started trying it, you saw the value in it? I wouldn't say as soon, right? At first I was like, <laughs> these people don't know what they're talking about. Look how much like more I have to type to write a test, right? Ugh, typing. Um, and then listening, and then start the next step after that was listening to why I have to do all this setup, right? Like, why is it that setting up an object is more painful than just saying like post equals create post? Why do I need to set up 20 different things? Is there a problem or with post that? post not new. Or po- create post is just oh. another way to shove it under the rug sometimes. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I have a tangentially related question for you. Why shouldn't tests be dependent on seed data? I've seen it work. I've seen it not work. I've seen both. Yeah, there's definitely good arguments for and against it. I think the most compelling argument for it is that when it's done correctly, your tests start to tell a consistent story that reverses all of your tests. In my experience, I've often seen when uh, people are relying on seed data or relying on fixtures you more often than not just end up with a new seed or a new fixture for that one edge case that you're trying to test and you're just ending up relying on, and and you can do the same thing with factories as well, where you just end up relying on things outside the test more than, uh, you know, one of the biggest ones that's a a personal style choice is I never call like uh, attributes on a model in a test or at least in an integration test. Uh, I'll always look for string literals when I'm, when I'm looking, like if, I, if I'm trying to find the user's email on the page, I won't look for user.email. I will look for the user's literal email. And then that forces me to then specify the email when I'm creating the user. Otherwise I end up with a mystery guest. And then that eventually ends up meaning that the test cannot be dependent on data from outside of the test. Yeah. And I think that's what, that's similar to what Josh has told me. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I believe that's the lesson I took away from some conversations with Josh, which is like, if you care about the specific value of an object that you're setting up like you care not just that it has an email but you care about like it has this email like don't rely on the factory to provide you like an email in that format you know email might not be a great example because it's generally done with like a sequence or whatever but like you might rely on like oh i know that when i create a factory for uh, a post it gets a draft status automatically right and i might say 
expect post.status to equal draft or to equal you know whatever the case may be right but basically always avoiding the mystery guess by saying like i need this to be this so i'm explicitly setting it to that value and that sounds like you're going even a step further which is saying like if i care about the value at all even if it's present like i care that there's an email because i don't think i would do what you're saying like i think i probably not that i'm out dismissing what you're saying i just don't think i currently would do that which is like if I created a user and I cared about the email, I would just probably say, like, I know the user requires an email address, so there will be an email address. And I would probably just say user.email. The other, the other uh, side of it, too, is that you don't know that the implementation of user.email isn't just a hard-coded string literal wibble. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. could be. Yeah, the, the reason I ask is because we were talking about you know, RSpec slut syntax versus writing RSpec tests in such a way that the setup is local to the scenario, the test scenario. And that made me think of seed data because I know some people like to seed the test database with data before running tests. But so I'm so used to thinking that the setup should be local to the um, scenario and it should only provide the dependencies that the code being exercised requires that the idea of putting a bunch of seeds that are required for multiple tests up front seems the opposite <laughs> of, of, of what I just described, which is making the setup specific to the code being exercised. Wouldn't it also, wouldn't it, wouldn't using extensive use of fixtures, wouldn't that also make TDD workflow slower, right? So like instead, yeah. so now you're, you've got to load, you know, maybe three or four users, five or six posts, yes. all that other stuff. Well, fixtures usually imply not needing database cleaner. Like it usually implies that the test runs within a transaction. Oh, right. So do you not need to reload the... Right. They would just be there. They would now, just be of course, there that the whole time. doesn't work with JavaScript, but... Mm-hmm. Um, Right. So as soon as you have yeah. a feature spec that has JS true, now <laughs> you're going to need truncation and then you need to reload after the suite is run, right? That sounds really slow, doesn't it? Yeah. I think there, I might be wrong on this, but I think there is maybe a strategy that Database Cleaner has where it just tracks the ID of created objects and then only deletes those IDs. Hmm. I could be completely wrong on that. But you could also be mutating. Right. So. Yeah. I think one of the other one of the other things about not using fixtures or seeds as well is it, is it can encourage you to write fewer integration tests. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that instead of having like one integration test per feature, which is often what leads to test suites being slow in the first place, it kind of encourages you to have fewer, longer feature tests that sort of weave in and out of the various features and are actually testing integration and telling a story in that specific test as opposed to relying on your entire test suite. So, uh, it, relying on your entire test suite telling a single coherent story. Yeah, I feel like I don't do that enough. I feel like I do test like, okay, I'm adding uh, the ability to write a new post. So uh, go to the post new page, fill in the thing, press publish, and make sure you get the, you know, you get a confirmation message or something like that. Where a better test might be like a user comes in, signs in, uh, creates, clicks the create post button, creates their post, goes back to the home page and sees their post, right? And that's like one long test with a lot of assertions, but you're getting a lot of value out of that one test and you're avoiding having to duplicate a lot of the setup that you would have done to test those separately. Yeah, I mean, I think the exercise and verify uh, stages of your test can be repeated as many times as you'd like in an integration test. 
Yeah, I'd like to approach. I'd like to try that some more. It's been a long time since I've been on a project where like things were greenfield enough to give that a shot, right? Um, right. But I'd like to try that some more. Well, it's also one of, one of those one weird tricks to make your to make your uh, slow integration test suite faster is to collapse a lot of your tests, right. <laughs> run yeah. fewer yeah. tests. <laughs> yes, I mean ultimately that like when you're dealing with integration tests, that it does often come down to that. There's not always going to be things where it's just like, and there's some way you can just make things universally faster. Right. I had so I wanted to change gears for a little bit, if that's okay. Yes. Yes. Because I had yeah. go for it. you early on. You mentioned like teachable moments being because like you're in the right frame of mind to learn that lesson. Right. And so I had a situation where very recently I had to hearken back to like just the experience I've been having very recently in consulting and also just elsewhere made me like learn a lesson that reminded me of something that happened to me in my career, like 10 plus years ago and (laughs) was something that I did not learn at the time, right? So, like, I wasn't ready to learn this lesson, but now, with the wisdom of all my age, right? (laughs) Like, (laughs) looking back at, like, 22-year-old, 23-year-old me and being, like, looking at that situation, being like, oh, this was the lesson I should have learned 10 years ago, and it took me 10 years of experience to finally look back and be like, oh, okay, I get it now. So, (laughs) with that said, um, I'll try to tell this as quickly as I can, but... So I worked for this company where I had the, my title was internet technologist, which is already an offshoot, but pretty <laughs> cool amazing. title. Yes. Right. Like, that is an awesome title. This isn't, this isn't, is in the era of like webmaster. And I feel like internet technologist is like way better than webmaster. Like, <laughs> what do you do? I'm an internet technologist. Um, <laughs> so, so my job was basically like, I did a lot of DevOps before DevOps was a thing. I did a lot of programming, various different things. One of my responsibilities was when we had software releases, we sold this company sold commercial software. I wasn't involved in writing the commercial software. I was more on like the IT side. I had to make sure that the servers like could handle the e-commerce load because every time we released a new version, a bunch of people would upgrade and we'd get a bunch of money. That's how business works. <laughs> so unfortunately, this company had like a really old e-commerce system that required use of a modem bank. So when you submitted a credit, when you, when you gave a credit card to this e-commerce system, it would like go talk to this modem bank which had like eight or ten modems in it that had like dedicated phone lines and it would dial out you know authorize the credit card and then the transaction would continue modem banks in the 2000s were not like a common thing so they weren't easy to manage remotely and they froze up a lot so part of my job was to just reboot the modem pool (laughs) 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 so like during a release i would like i would make sure like okay i know we're going to release in the morning i know we're going to release like in the if we were going to release in the evening i would stay late that day reboot before i left and then i would make sure transactions were going through and then i would come into the office again reboot the modem pool again (laughs) go home because like rebooting it was a good preventative measure right Uh so even if it wasn't hung i would reboot it if, but I'd have to wait till no transactions. So I'd like listen to the modem bank, you know, like, uh, <laughs> wow. but, so, um, so one time I went out and had fun instead and the modem bank hung up and I got in a lot of trouble because, you know, we had this major release of some software and we weren't able to process transactions for it. So I got in a lot of trouble and I was, I remember then on, from then on in, like the approach I took was like, oh, okay, well, if that's going to be the case, I need to be able to reboot this modem, modem pool remotely. So I don't have to come into the office to do it. So like we got like a switch that lets me do that. So I thought like the lesson I had learned was like, okay, if your job is to push this button every two, (laughs) two hours, right? If that's your job, then you should do whatever you can to like automate it and make this, make it so that like pushing that button is as efficient as possible. Right. And that's my job. But looking back 10 years later and through the lens of like consulting, 
my job wasn't to keep the modem pool up and running, right? What my job really was, was to like point out the fact that it was ridiculous that we were in the early 2000s, we were using a modem pool to charge credit cards. Um, <laughs> right. So like the, the lesson there was like, I don't know, I guess I could kind of draw it to like a doctor, right? If you go into the doctor and you're like complaining of a very specific problem, the doctor doesn't just like look at that one very specific problem. They start to ask more interesting questions. Like they'll ask you things like, have you been under a lot of stress lately? And you're sitting there and you're like. I'm bleeding from, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. You're like, what does this have to do with me being under stress? But they're thinking on a much higher level, right? They're thinking about root causes and things like that. And that's kind of like the lesson that I took 10 years later was that I should never have made all those steps to like make rebooting the modem pool easier because all I did was prolong the bad situation that we were in, right? Instead, I should have been like, this is a risk. And it should have like yelled it from the rooftops about like every time we release software, we lose money because this modem bank freezes up. We need to get onto an e-commerce system that doesn't require us dialing over a modem to credit to authorize a credit card. And eventually we did, but like because I didn't was realize it, spree? <laughs> it was not spree. It was digital river is what we went to. Um, so like that was a, a lesson that I learned many, many years later. And I think I learned it via consulting because mm-hmm. when we come in, the similar thing happens like in the doctor's office where they're like, we have this problem. And you're like, okay, well, I can be a contractor and work on the problem that you're telling me to work on. Or I can be a consultant and be like, okay, I can work on this problem for a little bit. But working on this problem for a little bit made me realize that the root cause is this. And if right. we attack this, it's going to have all these other benefits, right? So that was a long story of like me coming to realize that you're hired as a professional to do your job and not necessarily to do like tasks Mm -hmm. and looking out for root cause stuff and stuff that's going to make not only your job easier, but big picture changes that are going to make the company run better or whatever, whatever, whatever you're working on. Right. So that was the lesson I learned after 10 years. (laughs) That's a great story. Modems. I don't, I don't have any professional stories that involve modems, but (laughs) I wish it did. Well, maybe not. Well, that sounds kind of awful. No, it's pretty. Yeah. It's pretty awful. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's really cool, and I think that it can be hard when you're in that position to take a step back and look at the system as a whole. So yeah, I mean, what you have to do is you have to take a step back, look at the system as a whole, then advocate for change, and that that whole process requires quite a bit of energy and confidence, which I feel like when you're younger, you probably don't have compared to where you are today. I certainly do not have the confidence to tell my boss, like, no, my job is to not reboot, is not to yeah. reboot the modem pool. Yeah, like, no, that's not totally. what I'm going to do. I'm not going to sit at home and then drive in and reboot this modem pool or even like babysit it from home. And so I can like remotely reboot this thing. It's just not what I'm going to do. Yeah. So definitely that's the kind of confidence you get when you're like, I can get another job in a few days probably. It'll be okay. Uh, (laughs) And experience. Experience. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's the experience that lets me feel like that, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. Good point. Good point. (laughs) So I got one that made me think of. Okay. Because I I actually was telling the story to one of my students recently, and I've taken a different conclusion from it than than I always used to. So... A couple of years back, I used to work for this company that uh, sold online instant gift certificates, and they started back when like that was an actually novel idea for a startup. And so their main market was day spas, because uh, day spas do a lot of gift certificate sales. And the the path, the uh, the evolution path that the that the software actually ended up taking was kind of interesting because it was it was things like oh well a lot of the people who could be using our our product don't have a website, so let's build our own CMS so that they can have a website. 
And then, oh, a lot of these people aren't marketing. So let's build a social media marketing suite so that they can market. Uh, and then when I was there, it was, oh, and it turns out that they're terrible at marketing. So let's write some tools to automatically generate marketing content for them so that they don't write terrible marketing content. <laughs> um, Anyway, so because the main uh, vertical that they were in was day spas, that meant that the biggest demographic buying them was people buying for their wives, girlfriends, or mothers, which meant that the three biggest days of the year were Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, and Christmas Eve. Might have actually been Christmas Day, I don't remember. But specifically the part that I found hilarious, it wasn't the day before Mother's Day or the day before <laughs> Valentine's Day. The two big days for sales were Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. We were where people came when they're like, oh shit, it's Mother's Day. I forgot. It's a valuable service. Yes. So one year, one year um, I was there and it was Christmas and uh, I was not working that day because nobody was really working that day. And um, my phone goes off and they're like, Hey, so like we're down, um, and we couldn't figure out what it was. Other than that, eventually the Apache queue would just back up, and then the request would just stop resolving. And the CTO needed to run reports sometimes, and like we hadn't discovered background jobs yet, so our Apache timeout was like thirty minutes, something like that. Uh, so the request would just sit, would hang uh, for thirty minutes before the server would actually terminate the request, and so just eventually everything would get backed up. Um, and we could reboot the servers and requests would come through for a, like a minute, maybe. And then we just ran into the same problem again. It was all go, it was all in the same endpoint and it was for, it was the actual create a charge endpoint that was causing the issue. And so I was looking through the code. We were all, you know, digging through this code and there was just, there was nothing that could have possibly led to an infinite loop, which is in my mind what this must be. Like the code, like the code is clearly executing forever. We must be in some form of an infinite loop why it would only happen on that page and then when rebooting the server i don't know what i was thinking but that's what I, that's what i thought and eventually when i was when we were absolutely certain there were no loops then it started being okay crawl through every function like every single function until eventually we, something stands out and repeat until we stop because you know we were losing millions of dollars and eventually i found this one function buried deep 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 in our credit card processing code because of course we did our own credit card processing and encryption because who doesn't love pci compliance <laughs> And there was a function that was, because this was PHP, one of like the 16 different functions you can call to encrypt a string. And this one took a constant as its third argument. And the constant we were passing it to it was uh, uh, PHP underscore random, which uh, might seem innocuous on a function that is responsible for generating random numbers or for encrypting strings, which needs uh, some random stuff. But if you look at the documentation, uh, that constant actually refers to the Unix file descriptor dev slash random. The other option on Unix would be dev slash u random. The u stands for uh, unblocking. And the difference between the two is that when your machine is out of random entropy, dev random will block until there is more random entropy, and dev u random will generate a slightly less random number. And if you read the documentation for this, the only time you'd ever need uh, to use dev random is if you were generating something super long lived, like an SSL key. But for basically everything else, dev u random is more than random enough. And web servers, because they don't have things like mice attached to them, don't tend to generate a lot of random entropy. Like, the only source is basically the speed of bits flipping in memory, which if your server is backed up, hmm. there's not many bits flipping because <laughs> you're blocked. Uh, so it would just never generate more entropy. And so literally adding the letter U in front of this fixed everything. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and at the time, I was, I was I, uh, the lesson I had taken from it was like, hmm, 
I guess knowing obscure random Unix things sometimes is useful because we we saved a lot of money by fixing that. But as time goes on, I've started and I've started getting more involved in open source and API design. I've started to realize that the lesson I learned from that is don't make your users make stupid choices that they don't have to, <laughs> because nobody's going to know which one to pick, and they're going to be like, oh, I need random, I need randomness, I should give them random mm-hmm. here. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. Like trying to. As the expert, you know this is the right thing to do, and so making that the default choice to make, right? Right, and like give them a second function called like generate random for SSL mm-hmm. or something more specific. Yeah, mm-hmm. generate more random, generate less random. <laughs> Secure <more> random. random. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 We have that in Ruby. Yes, and it's had many security vulnerabilities. Right. <laughs> um, I was going to say that's an amazing story, and yeah. One one letter can make all the difference sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> one letter or one semicolon, depending on your language. That's a good. That's a good diff, though. You're like, uh, okay, the site was down. Um, here's the fix. I type the letter U, yeah. and we're good. Like, and no, the previous thing wasn't a typo where I forgot to type U. It worked, but just putting this U in here makes it work better. <laughs> what was great was uh, I didn't have access to production, and we didn't use like Git or anything like that to deploy. Um, they just SCP'd the files up to nice. production. Mm-hmm. And so the my direct supervisor who did have access to production, I literally I am now like put a U on this line, and she's just like what? And I'm just like just trust me on this. I'll explain <laughs> later. <laughs> it transfers a, per- a small percentage of every transaction into. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Cool. Uh, Any other yeah. uh, teachable moments? Uh, I mean, there's lots of teachable yeah, moments, right? Yeah, there like, are lots of them, but I think I think those were. The, the top ones. Those, all, those were all pretty good. <laughs> I think most teachable moments don't actually have that big aha feeling, especially in programming. It's like you have a million of them every day. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And I also feel like something that's come up a couple times as we've been telling these stories is like we're like, at the time, I realized this. And then as time went on, my, um, you know, that moment stuck with me and my understanding of it changed. So, yeah, in the moment, like, who knows what kind of what kind of lasting effect it's going to have over time what kind of impact it's going to have on your work. Boom. Butterfly effect. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So for those of you who have been following the Rust ORM, we're, we're recording a couple weeks behind, but delayed, so I haven't actually done this yet. But I, uh, by the time this airs, I'm expecting to have released version 0.1. So if you're interested in checking it out, uh, you should come do that. It's, I still need to come up with a name. Um, but I presumably I will have also made github.com slash sgrif slash yqb redirect to whatever the actual name is by the time we ship that. So, yeah, we should do that because it'll be cool. Nice. Cool. Uh, should we wrap up? Yeah, let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 43. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to The Bike Shed.